Let us take a look at the Laredo of the middle 1880s. Laredo had been founded in 1755 and raised to the dignity of an incorporated town in 1767, after which time elections were held each year for city officials. So, city elections became annual events and were conducted with all the vigor of revolutionary uprisings. An old Mexican born in Laredo once remarked to this writer that, quote, as long as there are two Mexicans in Mexico, there will be revolutions. By the time of the city election on April 6, 1886, the voters of Laredo were divided into two strong opposing political parties. The Citizens Party adopted as their campaign slogan the name Guarache, by which it was universally called. Guarache is the Mexican Indian word adopted into Spanish for the sandal composed of a rawhide sole with thongs of the same material used to hold it on the bare foot, and it is the footwear of the most lowly class in Mexico. The opposing party, self-styled Democrats, were mainly composed of the aristocratic element, but with a strong proletarian following. The Mexican nature must have a symbol or a word to distinguish their party, so the leaders adopted the more elegant word bota, boot, for their political battle cry. In all the excitement of the moment of competing demonstrations of Guarache and Bota leading up to the election of April 6, 1886, no one has ever definitively stated who fired the first shot that brought on the general engagement between the two forces in the downtown Laredo Plaza. One specter a few days later wrote, quote, the Guaraches attacked the procession of Botas in front and rear, breaking their ranks and scattering them in confusion, flying helter-skelter to places of shelter. A few months after the riot, the good priest, Father A.M. Souchon, testified, quote, I saw the procession of botas as it marched along. I saw it across the plaza. They were going quietly. They had music with them. I saw the first shot fired, but do not know who fired it. It came from the street northeast from our house. Two shots fired at the procession. I suppose it was about the east part of that block that the first two shots were fired, and the men shot from the north toward the procession. The men who did the shooting were on horseback, and they were running. They shot and ran up the street from the river. A cannon opened on the procession, but being some two blocks distant and aimed a little too high, most of the nails and scrap iron uh, fired from the cannon from which it was loaded went over the heads of the crowd and struck the top of the old high school annex. The firing continued for some time and then slowed down while the combatants went to seek more ammunition. And on their return, the hostilities, the violence between Guarache and Bota were renewed with vigor. After the battle had subsided, the Botas reformed and continued their march back on their hall to Iturbide Street, but they were fired on by Guaraches again. It was at this moment that Colonel R.F. Bernard, commanding officer at Fort McIntosh, appeared on the scene with a body of United States soldiers, and peace was restored. The abrupt ending of the fight caused one reporter to wire his paper, quote, it is impossible to surmise how long the thing would have lasted. It would probably have been a case of the Kilkenny cats, but for the appearance of United States regulars on the scene. Colonel Bernard immediately disarmed all participants without respect to party affiliation, closed the ferry to Nuevo Laredo, and patrolled the town during the night and following day. Thus the election of 1886 in Laredo. But with all the bitter feeling engendered by the riotous conflicts of that campaign, time, the great healer, intervened before the next city election in Laredo the next year, and the hatchet was buried, for in the issue of April 6, 1887, the Laredo Times remarked, quote, We are a band of brothers was the appropriate heir for the election all day long. Botas and Guaraches fraternized, in some instances the latter voting the only ticket in the field, simply snatching off the head, Democratic ticket. That's the good new way. So peace reigned on the Rio Grande.
once more. That is from the Laredo City Election and Riot of April 1886 by Seb S. Wilcox in the Southwestern Historical Quarterly of July 1941. I'm Joshua Trevino, and this is The Hard Country. Welcome to Hard Country. My name is Melissa Ford. I'm a policy director at the Texas Public Policy Foundation, and I am joined by Joshua Trevino, the foundation's chief of intelligence and research. Thank you, Josh, for reading those paragraphs. Uh, Before I start with all the questions I have for you today, um, would you mind telling us a little bit about why you picked it? Oh, my gosh. Well, before I even say that, Melissa, happy birthday. Oh, thanks, Josh. uh, Thank you. I'm glad you're taking time on your birthday to do this podcast with us. There's Uh, nothing else I would rather do. Okay, that's that's extremely kind. Uh, uh, I know that's not true, though. So, <laughs> the um, you know, I, I picked it because it's such a. I mean, it's colorful for one thing. Yeah, and it really, it really it was just, great. It I really, it. it really shows just how how riotous and fractious uh, politics on on the border has always been. Right. You know, one of the things that that we talk about in this podcast is kind of the recurrence of history. How there's nothing really quite new that comes upon this region uh, of yeah. the world, really, and and probably the rest of the world too. Um, uh, and so what we see is is kind of the, the the tumult and violence, you know, and corruption and color and interestingness of the Texas-Mexico border, especially that section of it, is not the exception, uh, but the norm. Often a tragic norm, uh, but in some cases, uh, you know, requiring the intervention of the United States Army to occupy Laredo in 1886, uh, extremely entertaining to read about, very, if not to live through. Laredo is such an interesting city, uh, as you know, th- those who saw our previous episode know that we were yeah. there uh, last week. Um, uh, Laredo is is, uh, is actually my father's hometown, yeah. uh, so we have we have family roots there, um, uh, and, and and it's always been an island unto itself. You know, when you get to Laredo, no matter where you're coming from, you've already driven through a minimum of 150 and more commonly 200 miles of, of essentially nothing, you know, very arid, sparsely populated South Texas land, and, and the same is true really if you're coming from the Mexican side as well. Uh, Laredo and Nuevo Laredo are you know, a singular conurbation divided by the river, uh, although there's civic lives, unfortunately, are diverging as Nuevo Laredo falls more and more under cartel rule. Uh, but but Laredo has a very unique civic culture. It's not it's not El Paso. It's not the valley. Um, uh, it is it is a thing unto itself. And uh, and so understanding it really requires understanding it uh, on its own terms and and with the realization that it is almost this cultural island. Uh, yeah. There even is I don't know if there's ever been any scholarship on it. Probably somewhere uh, somebody's yeah, done I it. Yeah, I wonder. There's even a there's even a Laredo accent uh, that you can tell. Uh, and so and and. and, and so you hear it, uh, really? you know. It's it's um, uh, anybody who is. Uh, I guess if you're watching this, you're you're on YouTube already. So uh, if you're on a podcast, my apologies. But if you if you get on YouTube, go look up the current mayor of Laredo. Same last name as me, uh, Trevino. His name is Victor Trevino. We had the pleasure of meeting him. Uh, he was very gracious with his time, and we spoke with him, uh, for, you know, at length. And uh, listen to his accent, uh, and that is that is a very distinct accent. I hear it from uh, particular generations of, of Laredoans, uh, including my own grandmother, uh, who has this accent. It's very distinct, and 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 when you hear this talk. Um, uh, this particular accent, you know that these are not individuals who are from, say, the Rio Grande Valley or somewhere else in South Texas. Uh, mm-hmm. There's nobody else who has it. And I think that the existence of that of that distinct accent, um, uh, which, which for me, I hear it in English. My Spanish is not good enough to detect an accent in Spanish. So maybe there's a Spanish accent, too. I couldn't tell. Um, uh, but really speaks to the cultural isolation uh, yeah. of, of, of Laredo, a fascinating place. So thank you for indulging me with it. Yeah, no, I'm, I'm going to be one of the people that are going to go YouTube that as soon as we're done, because sure. I had no idea. 
That's yeah. very interesting that they have their own accent. Yeah, and can I say one other thing? I'm yeah, sorry about uh, you know it's interesting. I'm certainly not you know we're a nonpartisan organization, so I'm not endorsing this mayor or anybody else in terms of candidates or office holders. But 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 the the mayor of Laredo to me, uh, the current mayor, uh, and by the way, we, we met with the, the previous mayor too, Mayor Science, who was a, okay. a very very generous man, also with his time and, and and attention and allowing us to see a lot of his city. Um, uh, but the current mayor, Mayor Trevino, is, is actually doing a very good thing in that uh, he is uh, very focused on um, on the history of Laredo. You know, you saw Laredo is, is a city that dates from the 1750s. Uh, its its founder was was a captain under Escandon, uh, Tomas San, Tomas Sanchez de la Barrera, um, who is an ancestor of mine, also oh. an also an ancestor of of, uh, of of the current mayor. He has a lot of descendants. Huh. He was fruitful and multiplied. So, <laughs> so there's a lot of people who are descended from Tomas Sanchez. But uh, uh, you know, you know, the, the the mayor made the point in conversation, and and I really appreciated this as somebody who's concerned with with history and specifically with Texas history, that uh, in 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 Laredo in particular, but really in South Texas in general, you have these cities that are older than the United States itself that have this very you know the very distinctive and unique right. Spanish and Mexican inheritance that that really nowhere else in the United States has, uh, and and also with the same you know original cohort of settlers who came here in the 18th century and who have tended to stay in the same place in the intervening uh, you know the three so we're now in the third century since the settlement, um, uh, and so and so he he made the point he said you know, not enough people realize that they don't understand it uh, uh, you know Tomas Sanchez I believe is actually in Nuevo Laredo he's buried in Nuevo Laredo because the uh, Nuevo Laredo was established kind of as a sidebar mm-hmm. after 1848. Uh, when there was a group of Laredoans who did not wish to live under the rule of the United States. And so they, they decamped oh. to the south side of the river. That's, that's why, why it's a new Laredo. That's why new Laredo is on the oh. south side. That's exactly right. Um, and I think they took, I believe they took Damas Sanchez's uh, body here. Somebody on the internet will correct me on that if I'm wrong. Uh, uh, but, uh, but, but, but the mayor said, look, we need to do more to establish that. So he is actually building... This is so heartwarming to me, you know, having witnessed the past, you know, five years to, to almost a decade of statues being torn down and history oh, yeah. being erased. They're building a heroic, uh, I think, equestrian statue with Tomas Sanchez in Laredo now. Really? They've got the land. I don't think construction started yet, but uh, okay. but he was saying, you know, the, the, the city's going to do it. And, and and the city itself is assuming responsibility for promoting more of, of the local history there. Uh, and so that that is incredibly heartening, uh, and I think it's a model for the rest of Texas and maybe the nation, yeah. because every every city, town, and community in, in the United States has something extraordinary about it. I mean, we're a nation descended of heroes, right? And so yeah. so to find that element uh, within the local history and to elevate it to build a heroic statue um, that, that that does matter, uh, you know, in terms of shaping people's consciousness and their understanding of of, of who brought them there and where they're from. Is uh, is just incredibly important. So Laredo, that's awesome. Laredo's doing something right in yeah. that in that vein. Yes. Well, I just want to say thank you for starting us off. First of all, with like a very entertaining um, passage, My and pleasure. then for giving us such a heartwarming tale about that. So, but thank you for bringing us up. Now I'm going to bring us down. Okay, go ahead. Yeah, as yeah. as we do. Yeah. So I I wanted to talk about other things at the border that are not so positive, right? So um, I'll shift to Laredo in a little bit, but first I wanted to ask you, especially since you were on the border last week, uh, we have just been talking about this week how we've been seeing all these videos and these photos of what's happening at the border. And so I wanted to ask you, um, so the first one happened on Thursday, and it's a photo of what appears to be like a cartel gunman in the area from Piedras Negras to Eagle Pass, right. um, Paso del Aguila. 
Yeah, and right. <laughs> he's holding like an AR platform rifle as he's like shepherding the migrants through the water. This is the one who's actually in the river, right? And then he escapes back. Right, right. Uh, it was, it was caught across. by a drone. So yes. you kind of see it coming from above. Sure. So that's that's one shot. And yes. then another one happened a couple days later on Saturday night. Um, and it's in the dark. And it was caught by one of those movement cameras. Right. And it shows this group of of cartel gunmen it appears to be because they're wearing you know full-on body armor and they have their 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 rifles as well and all these guns and um and it that appears that they're oh i'm sorry go ahead no no go, go ahead. ahead it was uh, i think front fronten fronton fronton, fronton texas in, in zapata county yeah yeah, yeah, yeah that's right. where it is yeah in the yeah. rio grande valley mm-hmm. um and so i just wanted to ask you about that i know you were just at the border uh did you see people crossing when you were there is that something that you expect to see yeah, right. Uh, uh, I mean, it's, it's it's amazing to get the images, right? Uh, yeah, so I, I'll I link have, them too. I have, yeah, please, uh, in the description of the show. Um, uh, I mean, I have run into people coming out of the river before. Uh, there was one time, I think I may have mentioned this on a previous episode, I was in Ansaldúas Park, uh, which is in Hidalgo uh, County, which is yeah, very, very well populated. And uh, and I ran into a guy coming out of the river. I mean, he was he was wet, and he clearly, clearly, clearly decided to swim the river. I believe he was caught. Pretty oh. quickly, because Border Patrol was was um, uh, swiftly on the scene, so he okay. sort of disappeared over the levee and and uh, and and did that. And then in in, in Del Rio, uh, I think two autumns ago, um, uh, I talked to a group of Venezuelans who'd just come out of the river, and they they were not all wet. They had taken a boat across, and, and oh. were, were then waiting for their their coyote pickup, uh, their traffickers to pick them up and take them take them inland. Um, so it's, it's it's not uncommon to encounter people uh, uh, illegally crossing. Uh, I'll put it that way. You know, you, you go enough and you go often enough, and you're going to run into someone. It just depends. What is what is interesting about the images that we've seen in the past uh, in the past week? Honestly, the ones that you highlighted, and you were the one who showed them to me. So thank you for being alert uh, on that. Uh, was was to see the armed individuals mm-hmm. uh, coming through. The guy who was in the river and apparently he had uh, an AR-15. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think that's the assumption. Uh, he's in the river and and I saw the images and he's kind of holding it up above the water and he's he's right. shooting people across a fording point. Um, uh, that that is uh, I, I, that that image. Uh, I was going to say I like that image. I don't like the image because uh, I don't like what's in it. But I like the utility of the image, which is to show that that these individuals, and this is something we've talked about over and over and over on the show, they're all trafficked and they're all under the control of men with guns. Uh, right. And so we have to understand that the overwhelming probability is that that man did not have a rifle to defend himself from anybody defending the North Bank. Quite the opposite. He had the rifle to terrorize and to keep in line the people whom he was trafficking across. Of course. We have to understand that they are prisoners. They are prisoners of men with guns. And whatever voluntary act they undertook to get themselves into the system, once they are there, they are not free to escape it. Uh, and so, you know, probably sound like a broken record for those who have listened to episode after episode, but shutting down that traffic is the most humane thing we can do for them, for their sake. Now the individuals crossing uh, in, uh, in in Zapata County. Now, now, for those who don't know, Zapata County is is extremely sparsely populated. There's two counties between um, I think uh, Hidalgo and, and Webb, so McAllen and Laredo up on the border, and it's Star and Zapata. Uh, and the viewer will forgive me if I've left out a county, but I believe that's the case. I, I think the whole riverfront is, is 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 I think it's Cameron, Hidalgo, Star, um, Zapata, and then Webb. Uh, and so, and so, uh, Star Star has about sixty thousand people. 
it's huge. Um, uh, Star also has a very interesting political history too, which we won't get into too deeply here. It used to be merged with uh, w with another county to its north, and uh, and it was split uh, circa 1900. I don't remember the exact year, so because there was an Anglo political machine and there was a Mexican American political machine, and the Guerras controlled the Mexican American political machine, and so they created Star County so the Guerras could control their own county seat. That was the kind of horse trading, political horse trading that went on. But in any case, Star's got about 60,000. Zapata uh, County is extremely sparsely populated. Uh, I didn't look up the population figures before coming on the podcast, but uh, if Star has 60,000, I, th I think Zapata has less than 10,000 people in it. Oh, it's tiny. It's, it's very, very small, yeah. very, very remote, very far flung, um, uh, just a lot of, uh, it's a lot of not much. And so, and so these individuals crossing in Zapata, when you cross in, th there are two kinds of crossers to kind of oversimplify a little bit. There's a crosser that wants to be caught because they believe that as soon as they get into the federal system, uh, that they'll be they'll be processed, mm. you know, released, transported inland, uh, which is frequently true, unfortunately. The individuals who are crossing at remote points who don't want to be caught, uh, those are the people who are genuinely, like in themselves, genuinely dangerous. The whole traffic is dangerous, but right. but, but these are the ones who, like as an individual, are dangerous. And so I run into, um, I've had I've had close encounters, I would say, with uh, with people out in. Presidio County, which is way far to the west, uh, and even more remote than Zapata County, because it's 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 like the size of New England, uh, and um, uh, saw signs of a crossing, and I left uh, immediately because if you're crossing in Presidio County, like you clearly don't want to be found, and I didn't want right. to be found because at yeah. the time I had. Uh, uh, I had my, my, my Toyota and myself, uh, and that was it. And so I didn't feel particularly secure. Uh, but, th but these are people that you don't want to meet. Uh, or if you do meet them, they will typically, and you can talk to ranchers out in Zapata County, as we did last week, who will you know get basically guns pointed at them and say, you know leave here, don't come back for another 30 minutes, we're going to use your that land, we're going to cross over. And th they're, either, they're either trafficking people sometimes that happens. There have been you know anecdotal reports uh, of, of individuals who are guarding groups and they're coming across and um, uh, you know and, and it's not they're not necessarily trafficking them so they can go work in kitchens in in Nashville right like, like sometimes these are these are like women who are and girls who are, are yeah. trafficked into a much more malevolent trade uh, and so and so sometimes you'll have that uh, and then sometimes there'll be individuals who'll just have backpacks and the assumption is that they're carrying fentanyl or heroin or you know whatever kind of uh, you know controlled substance is, right. is, is 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 in their packs the images that uh, that uh, it was Bill Malugin, right, uh, from yes. Fox News, yeah, who did yeah. it. Uh, one of the, one of the one of the great border reporters of our age. One yeah. of the few guys, you know, you can count on on one hand, Beth, you know, Bill Malugin, Bethany Blankley, Anna Giarrotelli, um, uh, uh, you know, who, who's our friend from CIS, uh, who does such amazing work. It's um, Benzman, Todd Benzman. Yeah. Uh, you know, people like that. Uh, uh, David Ogren, you know, mm -hmm. uh, the, like people like that do outstanding work. Um, they're a minority within the journalistic community who, right. you know, by and large simply don't care to report on this, or if they do report on it, it's through the lens of domestic politics. So it was Bill Malugin at Fox News who got this imagery of these individuals who are in military style gear, and they're each, uh, it, it's a line of them, if I recall correctly. Was it a single person, or was it a, was it a line? The one from the cameras? Correct. It was a line. It was a line. Yeah, yes, there was line. multiple. And, and they all had rifles, and they all had packs yeah. on, and, and uh, their, their faces were covered, I think. Uh, which is which is pretty remarkable given that it's like 110, 111 degrees oh, uh, there. Yeah. So even at night, it's in the 90s uh, in this part. But but they they don't want to be found. They wanna they wanna go through the brush and they are well armed. And uh, these are individuals, unlike the guy in the river, who was carrying his his uh, his, his his arms, his personal weapon, um, to use against the migrants. Yeah. These people in the United States heading north are carrying arms uh, to fight off 
you and me, if right. we're out there hunting or we're a ranch owner or something like that, and, and, and that is qualitatively different, you might call it invasion. Um, uh, but just to, you know, just imagine that if this if this one thing is caught, and, and look, you and I both, uh, you and me and our colleagues, we've talked to numberless at this point, ranchers, landowners, South Texas residents who've had these encounters over and over and over. Oh yeah, uh, I remember talking it's with a common thing for uh, them. It, it, it almost is a common thing. You know, you know, what, what you know, do you remember the time that you ran into people in military gear and they were carrying sidearms and what happened? And you're usually told you get out of the way. Like thank God they're not they're not all killed. Some of them are sometimes. Um, I remember talking with a gentleman, this is several years back, uh, in the Rio Grande Valley, and he and a buddy were fishing, and um, uh, somebody somebody came out of the brush and held him at gunpoint. They had to go face down and, and uh, wait uh, until whatever was crossing crossed, and then, and then they were told not to, not to sit up and look around for another half hour until everybody had departed. This is happening on U.S. soil. Oh, yeah. Uh, and, 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 so, and so we need to um, – I'll close with this because uh, this gets me hot and I don't want to get too angry on the podcast. But, uh, you know, th- th- this kind of thing, when, when you have it, and let's say you're a landowner. Let's say you're, you're an American citizen on American soil and you have uh, arms-bearing men from another country coming over, coming onto your land – and denying you use of your land, curbing your activities, putting you under threat, what's your rational expectation? The rational expectation is that the United States of America will protect you because that is the bargain that you make, the implicit bargain that you make when you subject yourself to and enter into you know, the social compact with democratic, small d democratic governance. We, we have talked uh, with ranchers, um, I don't have permission to use their names, but uh, and I may have mentioned this on the previous podcast, but it's worth re-mentioning if I did. Um, uh, you know, we talked with, with one rancher who had roots uh, that go back in this region in Zapata County, in, or in Star County in particular, mm-hmm. um, uh, as, as, uh, as, long as, as long as mine do. Yeah. Uh, and, so, and so there's a, there's a house in the plaza in Roma, Texas, the Ramirez house that, um, that uh, one of my ancestors built. And across the street uh, from it is an even nicer house called the Guerra house that this guy's ancestor built. Uh, and it's a much nicer house. And so, and so, so he and I both have you know, like this longstanding presence uh, with the difference that he's still there. And he said, look, you know, I'm a landowner here. My family's been here for, for centuries. Mm-hmm. You know, you know, I served in the army. I'm you know, a loyal American. I believe in everything. Why, why has the United States abandoned me? Why, you know, why have we been abandoned? Like our, all of our community does it not care anymore. And if that's the case, now he didn't, this is not where he went, but when people start asking a question like that, that is incredibly dangerous for civics and for society and for the longevity of a legitimate state. And um, uh, it, it just, the, the, the questions that get raised become increasingly fraught. Why statesmanship would short circuit all of it by closing the border and securing it? And then people wouldn't ask questions like that, and then you wouldn't have to answer them. But why statesmanship is not an evidence on the border these days, especially not coming from Washington, D.C.? No, definitely not. And we heard very similar stories even in El Paso, you know, about entire families that had to move away because they they feared for their lives. They had been threatened by cartel gunmen. They, I think one of these families, this is really sad, but they got all of their pecan trees burnt down by the cartel gunmen because they didn't listen to direct. Like, we, we heard some crazy stories. Really? Yeah. And so I think w- the last thing that I want to say about that is I, I really want to make it clear and reiterate what you just said that this is what we're talking about when we talk about an invasion, right? Right. Because I think a lot of the time people, and especially the media, they 
they try to frame that we're talking that when we talk about invasion we're talking about an invasion by the migrants and we're not we're talking about the invasion by the cartels exactly and i think that's why these images especially the one of the cartel members that don't want to be seen that are coming in here wanting to cause harm and 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 wreak havoc on on our land that's exactly what we're talking about when we talk about an invasion and the dangers of an invasion yeah and then one more thing that you know, I'm sure that you can say it, just having come from the border and having met with people there, this is this is the result of uncontrolled migration, right? I mean, all of the people on our borders and our law enforcement, this is what they're dealing with. Yeah. They're so overwhelmed that this is what's coming in when no one can see it. This is it's leaving all these gaps on our border, and this is what's happening. This is the result of that. That's right. And so, yeah, and and unfortunately, I just want to shout out the governor, because unfortunately, people are standing in his way when he tries to do something about that. Right. And just one of many examples, um, I think this happened last week, the Eagle Pass City Council situation. Sure, yes, So please. basically, yes, this the city council had this vote and decided to rescind an affidavit that had been placed where it, where it put this park, the Shelby Park, in... Um, in custody, basically, of the governor, right? Mm-hmm. So it it gave a park to the governor. This happened about a year ago that the, it became the governor's property. And it's this, Kareen was just there, one of our colleagues, Kareen. Yes. It's basically this park with um, sports fields and walking trails, and it's got a boat ramp so people can go into the water. It wasn't personally the governor's property. It was, it was they basically allowed use of the park for, exactly. by, by the executive branch. Yeah, yeah, but, yeah. But what they did this last week, because the governor had been using it for the border initiatives, and that's where the shipping containers were placed, and it was instrumental in placing the buoys as well. Sure. Um, but what happened last week, after over, I think, an hour or two of listening to complaints, um, like a town hall, I guess, essentially, is they decided to rescind that and put it back in the name of the mayor so Mm. that the governor can't use it anymore. And so I just thought that was a really good example of what's happening with people standing in the way of the governor and what kind of lengths people are willing to go to to make sure that the border remains unsecure. Yeah, it's it's almost become an ideological uh, battleground, right? So you saw, um, uh, you know, you saw Joaquin Castro, for example, uh, going to the border this past week, and and he stands at the fence and sort of does his photo op, and then he uh, yep. he says that uh, he went on record telling press that uh, he was going to urge the Department of Justice to prosecute Texas uh, state troopers for murder. Um, that was his phrase. Uh, you know, not not, not much. I'm not paraphrasing. He said we're gonna we're gonna encourage them to be prosecuted for murder if they force anybody back in the river, or force anybody to try to try to go back and cross, well, which is a crazy thing to say. And look, yeah. you know, from a naked political perspective, um, uh, you know, if the other side wants to have that conversation where they're attacking Texas lawmen who are trying to secure the border, then you know, you, you're free to commit that kind of political suicide as you will. Um, uh, but, you know, we're, we're not a partisan organization. You know, our goal is to see what's best for Texas, and it's extremely disheartening to see that uh, that is it has become this. You know, I, I think this brings up an interesting point uh, too, which is which is that the you know the population. You know, you talk about the individuals who had their their pecan orchard burned, the ranchers that we spoke with, uh, the people who have been forced out of their homes. Uh, what do they all have in common? Almost all of them, almost all of them, 
are Mexican Americans whose primary language is Spanish. Right. Uh, it is it is it is obvious uh, throughout that the population down there, which is a traditionally Spanish speaking, traditionally Mexican Spanish descended population that's been there for centuries, uh, are the ones who are suffering the most from the unsecured border, and they know it, and they're crying out for help. And what's very very interesting is that um, the the ideological again, I don't want to get partisan here because we're not you know we're we're five hundred one c three, we're not affiliated with any any party organization, nor will we be or campaign, but we. You talk about ideological coalitions in American governance, um, uh, and we're conservative, so we're part of we're part of an ideological coalition. Uh, it is it has been conservatives who have been focused on the working class, on working Americans, who have actually been very sensitive uh, to to the pleas from this constituency that if you go by kind of the left's theory of class and race and ethnicity, um, uh, should be uh, in, in in lock with them. And on the flip side of that. Uh, it is it is sort of these these uh, these ideologically motivated um, you know uh, frequently upper income Anglo's who are completely deaf to the cries of for help and the pleas for help of individuals who own land in South Texas who are yeah. Mexican American who are Hispanic uh, and who simply want to be allowed to live their lives in dignity as they deserve as citizens of the United States um, uh, that to me is absolutely glaring you know you saw the and you saw the differential in in response. So South Texas communities with Hispanics can get ravaged by um, by the cartels, by yeah. trafficking, by everything, and uh, and and suffer the effects of it in innumerable ways, innumerable ways. And uh, on a national level, media and kind of the regime structure doesn't really care that much. It doesn't really care what happens to these communities. It's just reality. They don't. Um, a few dozen migrants arrive in Martha's Vineyard, on the other hand, uh, and impinge upon the lives and daily routine of, of, of the, the folks there. And, you know, you can look up the, the demographic characteristics of Martha's Vineyard for yourself. It won't surprise you. <laughs> Suddenly that's a crisis. Suddenly yeah. that's a great moral thing. And it speaks it's volumes. Oh, sure. It speaks volumes as to, as to the priorities of the regime in Washington, D.C., and who it really serves. And, uh, and, and I think that in the fullness of time, uh, and frankly, I hope that in the fullness of time, it's going to lead to a, a realignment that will be to the regime's disfavor uh, in the long run. And will you share, I think this is relevant, you haven't said this on the podcast yet, but you shared it with me. Will you share real quick what you were told um, from the South Texans, how a lot of people will go for photo ops, but never follow up? Yeah, uh, sure. Uh, th thank you for bringing that up. Uh, well, yes, that that is one thing that we heard from from folks, ranchers in particular in South Texas, uh, and they were they were pointing the finger at me and uh, and and our colleague, because because to them we were just yet another example of individuals from Austin and from Washington D.C. who come through and we have discussions and roundtables and express concern, and then we go back and from their perspective nothing happens. Uh, you know, you know, thanks. And so we we had a guy tell us that. Uh, you know, a United States senator, I won't say who, but, you know, a United States senator just came through here, you know, several days back. We've had, congress you know, congressional delegations come through. We've had individuals from, from Austin, from, you know, from Capitol Hill. And they show up and they express concern. They say, oh, we got to mm -hmm. do something. And say, well, you know, you're in the Capitol. Why don't you do something? And again, they're pointing at me. Uh, now, yeah, I mean, I'm doing what I can do, which is basically make a podcast and work in policy. But, um, but, but, but they're not wrong. They're not wrong to have that sentiment. Yeah. They're not wrong to ask, uh, you, know, you know, okay, thanks for using us as a photo op. You know, thanks for expressing concern, but it's time for action. It's past time for action. Yeah. Uh, these are individuals who deserve and need and require um, uh, the, the, the government the, you know, who's, you know, to, to which they pay tax dollars, right? right. You know, we have four buy-in of the people uh, uh, ought, to, ought to step in on their behalf, and it is failing to do so. 
You know, you know, one thing that that we uh, looked at in our research here at the foundation, uh, especially on an Article One, Section Ten, uh, state invasion declaration. So, for those of you who who want to look it up, look up uh, our research on the Compact Clause and how it's interpreted under Article One, Section Ten of the Constitution, because we've done a lot of really good, original, and I think very compelling. I'm biased, but very compelling work uh, on what invasion means under the Constitution and how a state can declare it. Uh, but one of the things that that uh, that we talked about, I mean, look, you read it, and one of two things will happen: either either you'll be much better informed, or your insomnia will be cured. And so, either way, it's, <laughs> it's a win. win. It's a win yeah. uh, for you. But you, you know, our, our our researcher whom we worked with, um, uh, you know, mentioned that the founders never envisioned. There was one scenario that the founders never envisioned. They never envisioned a scenario. Didn't, didn't consider it. There's nothing in the Federalist Papers. There's nothing in the constitutional debates. They never considered a scenario in which the federal government would fail to defend the United States. They really didn't. It didn't cross their mind. It wasn't that they, they, they thought about it and they said, we don't need to plan for it. There was nothing there. There was no thought that any scenario like this could arise that would not generate a response from a truly Republican, small-r Republican uh, government. Uh, and the fact that that is happening now um, puts us into into new territory, uh, mm-hmm. I think, and um, we just got to be aware of it. Thanks for sharing. Yeah, I, I mean, these people have all the right to be demanding that from their government, and it's really sad that they're not getting it, and I can't imagine how frustrating that must be. Oh, yeah. Um, but since we're on the topic of the border, I wanted to ask you two things related to the U.S. government's CBP-1 phone app. Oh, sure. Um, I yeah. know one of them you had made commentary on online so i wanted to ask you if you could share a little bit about that with our with our listeners um but i've been seeing there are all these new claims about how mexican cartels have been exploiting um Mm -hmm. the cbp1 app and they've found these like new innovative ways to basically make an unlimited number of appointments from anywhere so you don't even have to be in like the geofence location of you know southern Mexico right. or to 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 be able to make an appointment, and so they're exploiting that, and they're just having a field day. Can it's, you tell our listeners a little bit about that? Yeah, no, I'd be I'd be happy to. Uh, you know, I mean, what what an amazing example of DC disconnect. This idea mm-hmm. that you can you can solve or mitigate the migration crisis by providing uh, you know migrants from you know, like the Guatemalan highlands with uh, with you know iPhone apps. Uh, that you could use. So the idea was CBP One, which you can go to the Android Store, App Store, or whatever, and yeah. and, and download. Anybody can. Uh, is that is that you can get on your phone and make an appointment, um, essentially to make a case that you should be admitted to the United States, whether as an asylee or anything else, um, uh, via your phone. And so you you log in, you get your appointment, and then you're and then you're good. And the idea is that you won't you won't migrate north if you do that. It's completely not how it's actually worked, uh, right. obviously, because it's not like people are staying in Tegucigalpa and then making an appointment, and then catching an aircraft, you know, a plane flying into Matamoros and crossing the border to to, to do it. That's not what's happening. What's happening is that people are like on the way, are trying to make their appointment, and CBP one uh, has been just plagued with issues um, from day one, and and set aside just the just the really bizarre assumptions that that went behind it. Uh, that this is right. a population that that you know you can you can access it through smartphones that has iPhones already. It's the kind of thing that people who work for people who live in Calorama think. You know, it's just it's so detached. But set that aside. Let's assume everybody's got access to it and things like that. So what they've done is they, they they've they, they basically geofence the utility of the app, 
you can't make your appointment if you're north of Mexico City. Uh, and so and so what's been happening, we, I talked with a, a um, uh, anyway, somebody knowledgeable uh, who, who told me that, um, that what was happening was that the cartels, the trafficking cartels, were then selling VPN access, virtual mm-hmm. private network access, so people could you know, claim to be That's from anywhere. Uh, so they could be in Mount Amoros, right up on the border, but they could, they could get a VPN in, in, in wherever it was, Chiapas or, or Panama. And, uh, and 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 making you know making their appointments there. So so that came out. Uh, there was there was a, a DHS spokesman who came out and said, well, that can't be true uh, because the geofencing doesn't rely upon you know VPN IP address. It relies you know it's it's a it's, it's a GPS signal. So there's actually um, uh, it's much more uh, objectively location based. Well, so so here's the thing. In either case, the CBP One app is is a failure on its own terms. What it has done is it has provided upsell opportunities for the trafficking cartels in either case, and it hasn't resulted in a measurably diminished flow of individuals northward. The only thing that's done that has been the extremely oppressive summer heat uh, in the region. So for the sake of argument, let's say that you can VPN in. Mm-hmm. Um, the traffickers now get to charge for a VPN. But let's say you can't. They're still charging for it because, right. again, it's another upsell opportunity uh, that, that that they have. So, you know, my recommendation would be for the the federal government to you know stop creating new market niches uh, for the traffickers and sh- shut down the border. You know, that that might be the most opportune thing to do. Yeah. Uh, eventually, they'll get to it. I just hope it's not too late. Yeah, and it's interesting, as you say, there's such a big disconnect, right? But I don't think the no, it's not I don't think. I know the Biden administration doesn't realize the lengths and the depths that the cartels are willing to go to to rake in more profit. A hundred percent. And they're sophisticated, too. Oh, uh, yeah. You know, it's not it's it, it's not beyond their ken to uh, do, you know, technical work and uh, app development. They're very organized. Very yeah, so, very yeah. sophisticated, as you say. But they are not the only ones taking advantage of the CBP One app. And that's the second thing that I wanted to ask you about is apparently a little while back, the Biden administration had to completely shut down the app after they started receiving complaints uh, and tips that Mexican immigration officials were using the appointments to basically basically threatened the migrants that were coming in through southern Mexico. Because as you know, like the CBP-1 app, if you have an appointment, it functions kind of like a visa, mm-hmm. right? If you have an appointment, they will let you in. Right. But that they were using that, they saw an opportunity there. And as we've talked about lots of times, corruption is kind of the, the, the grease that keeps the wheels turning in Mexico, which mm-hmm. is not surprising. It's that way in a lot of a lot of Latin America. But that these immigration um, personnel were basically threatening to make migrants miss their appointments and taking their passports and all of these things oh, if they didn't get cash for it. So they were saying essentially, and, and there's, if you can, I'll link the article that I got this from, but Please. there are stories of people, real people talking about their experience here. And one man from Venezuela talks about how him and this big group were asked to pay money. They were they were told essentially like put some money in this envelope and like we'll see what we can do. But they got their their passports taken away from them and they got threatened that they would miss their appointment if right. they didn't get kickbacks. Because you got an appointment, you're even more motivated to, uh, to 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 get there and to pay whatever extortion is demanded of you. Is this surprising to, point, to you at un- all or un- not? Unfortunately not. Uh, I mean, it's, it's, it's appalling. Yeah. But I wish it was surprising. Yeah. It's, it's very sad. Um, but it's, 
so we know Mexico's corrupt, right? Like it's no no news flash here, but I wanted to take that to ask you about some of the corruption that's happening uh, here in Texas because the U.S. Sure. is not immune to all of that corruption. And you were just there, so this is actually very relevant. But yesterday we were reading that the Stark County uh, Sheriff's son mm-hmm. pled guilty to federal charges for looking the other way on a cocaine shipment uh, and getting paid in cash. Yeah. Have you heard of that? Uh, I've, I've read the news story, yes. Yeah. Yeah. No, I just, I wanted to bring that up because this is a point that we make all the time and a really good example of something that we've done research on and something that we talk about often, which is the elites mm-hmm. are enabling the cartels to thrive. That's right. And this is not talked about enough, um, but it happens all the time, especially a lot of the time in South Texas and with prominent figures. Obviously, it happens in Mexico too, but this one hit close to home, I feel like, because you guys were just there. Yeah, yeah, it does. We've talked a little bit about this on on previous podcasts. There's a a, pretty robust record of uh, sheriffs and sheriff's department officials uh, being in league with the cartels uh, here in Texas. And, uh, you know, you saw it uh, under, I mean, this is many years back, but uh, Sheriff Cantu in Cameron County, and then uh, much more recently, Sheriff Trevino, fellow Trevino in in Hidalgo County. He and his son, who was also in the sheriff's uh, department, were in league with the Los Cetas, I believe. Mm -hmm. Um, uh, There was a sheriff out in Presidio County, and now we have this new new story of the son of the... um, of the sheriff of Star County, Texas. Yep. Uh, uh, so father and son both named uh, Fuentes. And, uh, you know, I, I, I haven't followed the case closely, so I don't know, like, what the what the range of evidence was. You know, what, what, what they convicted him on is not necessarily the same thing as what he did, so there's probably, there's probably more uh, to it. Um, uh, you know, we, we can't necessarily assume that anybody else was involved. It might have been a bad apple in the family. Who knows? Um, uh, but we should be rationally skeptical. And, and, and look, this guy was a lawman. Uh, you know, he was, he was yeah. there. So, so, so you have to ask yourself, uh, if you are, uh, if you live in Stark County, if you live in San Ignacio, if you live in, uh, you know, you know Zapata, Texas, or, or, any, or anywhere else, um, uh, you know, if you have to call the police, if somebody's on your land uh, and you're being threatened or you feel like there's an issue, uh, and if you have to call the sheriff's department, how much confidence can you have necessarily? Mm. Um, uh, you know, ultimately you have no choice but to trust your sheriff and trust your you know local PD if you're in a if you're in a you know organized urban area. Um, but that adds another layer of risk and and kind of this fraught quality right. to, to to life there. And yeah, you know, Americans shouldn't have to worry about that. Yeah, honestly. Yeah. Well, I know we're running out of time, but do you have a minute so that we can talk about a little bit Mexican drama and end on a high note? Sure, yes. Okay. Uh, let's end on a high note. Because I meant to ask you this um, for the last podcast, but I wanted to ask okay. you your thoughts on the Vicente Fox comments. Um, oh, former two president weeks ago. of Mexico. Yeah, yes, this was two weeks yes. ago. Vicente Fox uh, speaking too much. Yes, so he said a couple things. <clears throat> so, first of all, he, you know, aimed some shots at uh, at AMLO because apparently AMLO discontinued benefits for retired presidents. And so he started by talking about that, saying right. that he's really been struggling to survive economically. Yeah. Um, and then he shifted gears and talked about some 
less well-off beneficiaries of welfare mm -hmm. and how there's no place for them in Mexico. There's no place for lazy people in Mexico. AMLO said this or Vicente Fox? Vicente Fox. Vicente Fox. Yes. Okay. Right. So, so AMLO, I don't think, would ever say that because that's the reason that people like his party so much, right? Is because well, they're getting... Well, I mean, who knows? Well... He, he, he might. He's, he, yeah. he's a family values guy. Anyway, go on, Well, please. we yeah. never know. But, yeah. um, but I wanted to ask you about that because then he managed to offend like all sorts of people across the line. So right now, like he's offended politicians, he offended pensioners. And then um, obviously, Ebrard and Scheinbaum came out mm -hmm. and condemned his comments, right? And so he flipped on Twitter and went ahead and called Scheinbaum a Bulgarian Jew and called Marcelo Ebrard a French snob. And then he tweeted that the only real Mexican is um, Xochitl. Xochitl Galvez. So, yes, her. Yes. Because she was, um, she's indigenous. She was the coordinator of indigenous affairs in his cabinet. Yes, and uh, as you know, like he's a longtime political rival of AMLO, and he's really supporting her. Yeah. And so I wanted to ask you what you thought of that, and if you think that this association will benefit her, or if you think she should distance herself a little bit because he's proving to be a liability. Well, don't don't, don't take my word for anything in Mexican politics. I don't think uh, association with uh, Vicente Fox is is. Uh, it's not as much of a con as association with Calderon, but uh, mm. he's not. Um, uh, I don't see any evidence that he's a big vote getter. Uh, I mean, I mean, look, I mean, what, what he said was was legitimately offensive, and you know, I, I speak as somebody who um, uh, is not not easily offended. But uh, you know, Claudia Scheinbaum is is Jewish. She's from a. Um, I don't remember what her family origins are. I think I think both her parents are immigrants. Yeah, uh, her father's family immigrated from Lithuania, um, right. and then mother's family from Bulgaria. Oh, I didn't know. So I didn't know. So she actually is. Half Bulgarian. Yeah. I mean, I mean by descent, right? So, right. so anyway, yeah, yes. But so, so you, I mean, you can say that, and that's actually. So, in fairness, it speaks well of Mexico that there's plenty of, of uh, you know, Ashkenazi Jews from the middle of the 20th century who were able to find refuge in Mexico. Oh, yeah. There's a yeah, big yeah. synagogue there that's near Parque Alameda, I think. Uh, that kind of testifies to that, and that, that actually is a positive note in Mexican history. That being said, uh, you know, deploying uh, Bulgarian Jew as a as a dismissal uh, actually is legitimately offensive. Yeah. I'm no I'm no fan of Claudia uh, as a politician, but you know she doesn't deserve to be smeared that way. Um, uh, Marcelo Ebrard, uh, I didn't know he was. Is he a, Fr a French descent? Is that yeah, is that true? He so, is, okay, yeah. well you know um, how, how far off. Uh, it, it didn't say. I looked it up and it just said that his family, they were all French immigrants. Oh, really? But okay. I just wanted to say I think it's funny because Vicente Fox himself is, you know, of Spanish and German lineage. So, oh, I didn't, I didn't, so I didn't even know that. I didn't know that uh, Fox was of German lineage. So yeah. maybe that's an extra frisson. I, what Fox said was stupid and, and legitimately offensive. Um, uh, Abrard being French, okay. Uh, Abroad being a snob, uh, actually, actually might be true, uh, but 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 again, uh, you know, does it comport with with the dignity and just kind of the normal duty to charity and kindness? No, it doesn't. Now, all that said, and you know, and allowing for um, uh, you know, kind of kind of uh, this this phenomenon of old man on Twitter, which is which is uh, you know one of the signals of our age. Um, uh, you know, Fox, in the most offensive uh, and inexcusable way possible. Uh, has gotten to something kind of at the core 
there's about a hundred different ways he could have put it that would have been you know acceptable and kind uh, to do it, uh, but has gotten to the core of why Xochitl Galvez is threatening uh, yeah. to the Morena candidates because right. you know if you if you want to put like quotes around it, like a real Mexican if you, if you could even define what a real Mexican is but yeah. certainly given the indigenista ideology that suffuses Mexican governance right now um, uh, Galvez is more of a again put in quotes real Mexican than anybody else in the field. You know, yeah. she's actually indigenous. She's. Do you, do you know uh, what her is? She is she Nawa? Is she what? What is no, she? No, I don't know. I need I to look it up. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. But but, uh, but anyway, that, that that's interesting. Yeah. I just want to tell you something funny sure. um, and close on something funny. Okay. Go ahead. I think that Scheinbaum is actually threatened um, because she's been accused of being a foreigner before. Mm. But she tweeted out she had to, she had to do this right because people are accusing her left and right that oh you're not a Mexican you're not a Mexican. She tweeted out her birth certificate recently. Did you okay. see that? Uh, yes, I did. She was born in Mexico. City, right. She? Yeah, so yeah, she right. tweeted that out. And I just thought it was funny because then she made just this very cringy statement um, saying that she's more Mexican than Mole. And she's more Mexican than Mole. She said that. Yeah. So I just wanted to end on a funny note. I dissent from that estimate. <laughs> but I agree that she's Mexican. So there we go. Well, yeah. anyway, thank you, Josh, for being on today. Thank um, you, and thank you for the conversation. And thank you to all of our listeners. Um, we will see you next time. <laughs>